Welcome to a single serving podcast. I'm your host, Shaney Silver. I started this podcast because whenever I saw content for single women, it was about dating, how to date better, how to survive dating. And I know that we deserve more than that. So I created this podcast to change the way being single is seen, discussed, and felt. And I'm so happy to have you here with me. I hope you'll also consider joining the Facebook group for this podcast. It's become a really supportive community full of people sharing stories and encouraging one another and actually meeting up in real life too. There are three main ways that you can support this podcast. The first is simply share it, share it with someone who needs to hear it, share it with your family, share it with your friends, anybody who could use a change in perspective when it comes to being single. The second way is you can rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It takes two seconds and it's a huge deal that really helps podcasters, um, get more visibility and continue to do their work. And then the third way is you can become a patron of mine on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that helps independent creators earn money for creating the work that people enjoy. So there are multiple tiers that you can join, but my favorite one is a $5 tier that comes with an extra bonus episode of this podcast every single month. So there will be a link to it below. Check it out. And in the meantime, thank you so much for joining me. Hello to this outstanding podcast audience. How are you? I hope everyone is well and staying safe and healthy. Um, I am in my apartment where I am super cold at the moment because I can't have the heat on while I record these introductions, but that's okay. That's totally fine. I'm willing to put on a sweater for you. I have a great episode for you today. I am speaking with Suzanne Falter, who is a writer and podcaster herself. And um, sometimes I think that the universe sends me podcasts guests. And I absolutely think that, uh, Suzanne is one of those, uh, you will soon hear. She is a wonderful soul and so smart and insightful about so many things that are pertinent to us. I do want to give one quick trigger warning to anyone listening. Uh, Suzanne lost her daughter Teal in 2012. So we are going to get into death and loss. And I want to make sure that if you are not in a place where you can hear a discussion about those things that you go ahead and skip this episode. Um, but otherwise, I think that this is a really beautiful conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I'm very lucky. This is my second conversation with Suzanne. I actually was, uh, right. Recorded an episode of her podcast. I don't think that it's live yet, but it will be soon. I will share it with you, but I'm very lucky that I got to speak with her twice. And, um, I really think you're going to like this one. What else do we have to go over? A huge thank you to everyone who has joined the Patreon. If you have not yet heard or seen the announcement, I have made some changes to the way the podcast is going to operate in 2021. Uh, starting January 1st, 2021, one episode of this podcast will publish to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and all the free platforms uh, per month. So one episode per month will publish like always, like you're used to. The remaining episodes each month, so one episode a week, they will still be made and they will still be published, but you will only be able to access them via my Patreon at the $5 per month tier. So if you would like to still have a weekly episode of a single serving podcast to listen to, you will need to become a patron of mine on Patreon at the $5 tier. And that comes with a few things uh, that comes with, first of all, 
the podcast, but it also includes access to a new patrons only Facebook group. And the original Facebook group for this podcast will be shut down on January 1st. And the patrons only group will take its place and you will get access to that when you become a patron. And I also want to make sure you know that as soon as you join my Patreon at the $5 per month tier, you will have access to over a year's worth of solo bonus episodes that I have been recording and publishing. Those are all there waiting for you and you have access to them as soon as you become a patron. And those episodes are led by a combination of things that I want to discuss and work through with you guys in terms of reframing and improving the way we think and feel about being single. And they're also really heavily led by patrons. The questions that come in, the comments that come in, the topics that you guys want me to discuss, anything that you want to feel better about or reframe. That's what goes into those solo episodes. And um, in 2021, I look forward to including a lot more content like that at the beginning of all of the episodes that are going to publish on Patreon. So there's going to be lots more of that content coming and I hope you enjoy. So I am going to go ahead and start this episode with Suzanne. Um, By the way, sorry, I should have said this earlier. If you have questions about the new format for the podcast, you are more than welcome to email me anytime. My email is a single serving podcast at gmail.com. You can also DM me on Instagram. You can DM me on Twitter. I'm very easy to find. And I, uh, my digital door is wide open to this audience. So please feel free to get in touch if you ever have any questions for me, um, or guest suggestions or topics you'd like me to cover. It's, it's all fair game. So feel free to send it over. Now I am really going to start the episode with Suzanne. I hope you enjoy this and thank you so much for listening. As my cat meows audibly and the microphone definitely picks it up. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? I'm great, Shaney. Thanks for having me, dear. It's nice to speak with you again. Um, for those listening, I have recorded once already with Suzanne for her podcast, which was very exciting and fun. And now it is my yes. privilege to have her on my podcast. So we for- love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. It's one of my favorite things to do. Yep. Tell everyone who is unfamiliar with your work a bit about you. What would you want an audience full of single people to know about you? Well, the podcast to which you referred, uh, Self Care for Extremely Busy Women, came up because I was and now am a reformed, extremely busy woman. And that reformation happened in 2012. Um, I had been running a very, very successful online marketing uh, program. And working, you know, 12 hour days and burning out basically. And I had just closed my business uh, because I couldn't keep it going and decided to do a different business. And um, the relationship I had been in, which was not a healthy relationship, had just ended. I had just moved out. I didn't really have a place to live. I was driving around the Bay Area with my belongings in a storage unit and my suitcase in the back of my Honda Fit. (laughs) I was trying to figure out where I was even going to live. And um, I was in a little rental for a month. And my daughter, my 22-year-old daughter, who had come out to San Francisco to kind of be near me and to pursue her dream as a healer, um, suddenly dropped dead. And uh, it, to this day, we'll, we don't know what the cause of her cardiac arrest was, but it was really uh, the beginning of a complete redo on my entire life. Because as she lay dying in the hospital, 
I realized she was not going to get to live. And I was living this toxic, out of balance, not authentic life, and everything had to change. So I took that time after her death to become a better person, one that was more like her, because she was a person who was really, she had excellent self-care. She had epilepsy, a a well-controlled case of epilepsy. Um, And her awareness of her body and herself and her needs and her values was just very present for her. And it was the thing that I had forgotten. And my premise about self-care, which is what I learned in the following two years after her death, was that self-care is an inside job. It's about setting boundaries. It's about giving yourself a break. It's about not overproducing. It's about being uh, aware enough of others that you are kind but that you can honor what you need first, which is a radical concept. I mean, I don't know about uh, single women in particular, but all women suffer from a need to honor other people's agendas and to give, give, give to the point of burnout at some point in their lives. You know, we certainly see this with mothers of young children or people taking care of the elderly, But I think for me, when I was single, man, I was doing it with my work. You know, I was really, um, I was really a slave to uh, helping my clients and uh, putting putting all their needs before mine. So um, in the intervening two years, I just became really, really quiet. I slowed down. I uh, lived on very little money, which is how I was able to take two years off. And um, a friend gave me her guest room and said, stay as long as you want. And I stayed for a year and a half. (laughs) And I cooked a lot of meals for her. And I did take care of her dog when she went away, which was often. And um, it really worked out. And it was a lifesaver because it taught me, first of all, that you don't have to do all this alone, that there's help out there. And I always thought I had to be steely independent. And I couldn't possibly stop and give other people the opportunity to support me. I thought that I had to have all the answers all the time for everybody and put my own needs on hold while I showed up to be superstar to the world. I think this audience will absolutely be able to identify with that. But first of all, I have to say thank you very much for for speaking with me in the first place about topics that are extremely significant and incredibly life-altering that I cannot fathom. So I have to give you my gratitude there. Um, Mm. But I also wanted to let you know that I personally, and I know my audience as well, enjoys talking to people who have made significant life changes. And sometimes it doesn't even matter what the change is. The fact that you've made it, the fact that you have gone from one iteration of your life into a new one, for me, it signifies that that's possible. And it signifies Mm -hmm. that if someone is in a phase of life right now or a season of their life right now, that maybe isn't their favorite, that change is possible. And I know that in particularly in the single space, and by the way, yes, we absolutely give to others first too, particularly in our work, but in many other ways, (laughs) um, I know that like it can sometimes feel like it's not an option. Change is not an option. Good things in the future 
are not an option. Good things in the future are not coming. It can, mm-hmm. uh, in the single space in particular, there can be this uh, sort of like a quagmire of low mm-hmm. self-esteem and low amounts of optimism. And thinking about the future isn't always the funnest thing to do. So to be able to speak with somebody who has changed their life significantly um, is a real privilege and a joy. So thank you so much for for being here to discuss that. And we will get to so much in what you just said, because there's a lot to unpack and a lot that I want to get into, and we absolutely will. I think, though, where I would like to start is from, if you could explain what you do professionally now and what you love most about the kind of work that you do. I will. I think I've got a comment, though, on your remark that people get caught in an emotional quagmire and they believe they can't move forward because that's very well articulated. And um, in that two years when I was grieving my daughter, I think one of the biggest discoveries I made was that it was okay to be alone, that being alone was a sacred space. And in fact, it was critical. In fact, I had, had, I had a new girlfriend at the time that uh, Teal died. And I immediately broke up and said, I have to be alone. And I was alone for a long time. And in that quag, you know, so-called quagmire of grief, um, I think I, it gave me a platform to, to finally wake up and pay attention to myself. And that's what the opportunity is. Um, to your question about what I do now professionally, well, I, I wrote a book called The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, and I do some speaking about that, and I do my podcast. Um, I also do a podcast called Back to Happy, which I do with the mother of the woman whose life was saved by my daughter's organs. And Teal, uh, Teal donated her uh, many of her organs, but her kidney and her heart went to a young woman just a little older than her named Amara, who is today working in a hospital after getting her training at the same college that my daughter was going to start attending the day after she collapsed. Coincidentally, we hadn't, we didn't even meet and find this out till five years after my daughter's death. (laughs) I don't, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I really don't. It's one of the, when I read that online the first time, it was one of the most remarkable things. Like there are podcasts on every topic in the world. There are about, mm, I don't know, 50,000 too many on true crime. We need more podcasts (laughs) that are truly remarkable. And I, I can't, it's something, it like kind of blows my mind that that the two of you are, are creating in, in a medium like this one are creating it all together. I think it's just the most remarkable thing, truly. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And uh, the thing that I love the most is that this woman and I immediately developed like best friend chemistry the night we met each other. We just, we just adore each other. We're dear, dear friends. We're very different. And we are people who are highly grateful to the other, me for keeping Teal's legacy going her for saving her daughter's life. And, um, and her daughter is an amazing person, and I'm so proud to have contributed in any way. But um, aside from that, aside from Back to Happy, um, I also uh, make a living, you know, I've written, I've written many, many books. I've been a professional writer for 40 years. And um, currently, uh, I am working writing fiction for hire, essentially, I have an investor uh, who's helping me to build a business selling novels. 
Uh, I'm a lesbian, so I write in the lesbian romance space. I have a series called The Oaktown Girls, which is a lot of fun. And uh, you that know, is so cool. I, a- I mean, this came to me. This came to me, Shaney. I did not go out and say, universe, send me an investor. <laughs> I was like, what do I do next? Oh, my God, I have no idea what to do next. And I had to live in the murky and uncertain place of the unknown for two years before he showed up out of the blue pretty much and offered me this. But I think the universe sent me you because Aww. for so long I have been – I've been a writer my entire life. And I wanted Aww, to write a book beautiful. my entire life. And it's been historically very difficult to do. It has not happened yet, but I know that it will. And I also have a lot of, um, so I'm a, I'm a humor essayist primarily. And I also write a lot in the single space, but I have like leanings toward fiction, but I'm very insecure about my fiction writing Uh ability because it's not what I'm known for. It's not what I do, but it does fascinate me. And I've always thought like, after I write the books about what I need to do, after I help single people, after that, I want to write fiction, but I don't know if anyone's going to listen to me because I've done work in this other space. But you are proof that you can do whatever you want. You can create whatever <laughs> you want. And so you need to see that. You need to see to believe that there are an infinite amount of possibilities for creativity and work. And I'm someone who has to work. Like I, That's my... It's what drives me. I'm, I just enjoy working very much. So it's nice yeah. to see. That no, no, are... I get Well, you love your work and yes. me too. And I feel the same way. Uh, overwork, I've always had to be careful of as a result. But I'll tell you, um, I relate to what you're saying because I've always, I, my first novel, I pub- the first book I published was a novel a long time ago, um, but it didn't sell. So I segued over to nonfiction and those books got more traction. Um so when my agent, my current literary agent, took my nonfiction work, I, it was kind of like, I'll show you my fiction if you want to <laughs> see it. And she is, in fact, mostly a fiction agent. She was like, oh, you write fiction too? Great. And I was like, oh, you know, I really was reluctantly handing over my books. And then I was like, okay, okay, just tell me. I just, I know you're not going to look. I love them, she said. Your voice is fine. Don't even worry about it. You know, and it was on to other things. So I was like, Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) It's hard to believe we can have it all. That's the truth. It is hard to believe, but I like seeing proof that you can. And obviously for everyone listening, I will link to all of her books in the show notes. You'll be able to check them out. Um, So, okay. I want to talk about, there's there's like a million things I want to talk to you about, but let's, let's go with the plan. Um, In your podcast, one of them, you guide extremely busy women on the topic of self-care. But I want to start with the definition of extremely busy. What does, for someone listening, how are they going to identify as extremely busy? Because like we're all, I mean, it's like this massive eye roll. You have to like book your friends three months in advance to go to dinner with them. Like we're all busy, right? But like, what mm-hmm. does, what does that moment of this is different? This is you too busy. You feel so busy. You can't make time to just do nothing and tune into yourself. Mm. And this, listen. There are readers who are retirees who do my work. This is not just about your paid work. This is about you have to compulsively keep doing stuff for other people to the point where you can't slow down and tune into yourself. You know? Okay. I've been there maybe my whole life until a couple of years ago. <laughs> I now have it written into my daily. I have like a daily schedule that I write out because I'm freelance. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, things will go off the rails. Yeah, me too. One of the hardest things to get used to was like uh, around 2 p.m. ish. 
I've started making a cup of tea and either drinking it while staring at a window and doing nothing on purpose or mm-hmm. uh, reading for pleasure, mm-hmm. not for, uh, mm-hmm. for work or anything like that. And it, for the first month that I was doing that, it was deeply uncomfortable. Is that mm-hmm. normal to be very uncomfortable while relaxing? Absolutely. Because we are trained to believe we have to overproduce. Many women are really into my work because I'm talking about this idea that we force ourselves to produce way more than you would ordinarily need to produce. We see this in the workplace sometimes where we show up with a presentation that's done to the nines and our, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but our male colleague might come breezing in with something casually done at the last minute. And that dude's going to get the accolades nine times out of 10. I'm saying we feel like we have to overproduce to justify who we are in the marketplace. But this is where it comes to kind of owning your mojo. Because if you can look at your ideas and say, oh, hey, this is good. This is as good as that other guy's. And not having to uh, stand in that space of I must work harder to prove myself or be justified or be validated, then you know, if we can just own what we've got as naturally valuable, that helps. The other thing we can do is make requests and stop being so darn available all the time. I I have a little Facebook group, the self-care group for extremely busy women. And somebody just posted today, I can't turn off my phone on the at night and on the weekends. And my boss is always calling me. And everybody's like, no, you can turn your phone off. You really have to turn your phone off because why is the boss calling you? Because he knows you'll answer. The dude needs a special ringtone. And I'm not even sure what that ringtone would be. But I bet we could come up with something very appropriate, you know? It sounds like, first of all, the group is not little. There are over 7,000 people in it. (laughs) Um, But it sounds like a component of extremely busy involves having zero boundaries and never saying no. I have had to learn about boundaries in my, I'm 38 now. I don't think that I really understood what they were until I was in my mid thirties because I was that person who was responding to emails at 11 PM because I thought I had to, and I haven't ever really been able to pinpoint where does have to come from. And maybe it is that sense of like, I don't feel valid. I have to prove myself for validity because in myself, I don't feel valid by myself. Is that, Mm -hmm. is that accurate? Yes. I'm telling you, roll like a guy. I mean, I, you know, like, yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. You can, it's okay. But but, um, we are conditioned to believe, and and the culture has really supported this, that we are biologically, well, we know we're biologically different, but we're uh, qualitatively different, that we can't deliver on the same level. And that is just caca nonsense. And we, we know it, but we're still like, if we had martyr moms or martyr grandmoms, then we might've gotten that message and it might've been hard to rewrite the code. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's really about um, owning our inherent value and refusing to overproduce. I think the bigger mindset for a lot of women is overproduce and think it isn't good enough. Right. Wrap your head around that. It's like, I did way too much, but it's still not enough. And I have worked with those people who do the bare minimum and are still just seen as like, they they drove me to freelance. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) 
me too. Uh, my least, a, I totally get it. My there was an advertising it's in a awful. nutshell. It's awful. There was the worst, one of the worst examples of this ever in my personal career is there was this like executive team meeting and I wasn't on the meeting because I was like head of, of the like digital world for this publication. Mm-hmm. And so there would be an executive meeting and it was about 50% female, 50% male, which is honestly pretty good. And mm-hmm. after the meeting was over, all the men would stay in the conference room and have the real version of that meeting. And oh, we could see them makes me sick. Because makes there were glass sick. walls. Oh my God. I was oh. irrigated once a week. Once a week. It just, and they would always like laugh it off like they were just shooting the shit or whatever in there. No, you're not. No, you're not because you're the executive team for this company. You're not just shooting the shit. You're doing things together without half of the team. There's a, an, a, a very important author for people who want to really look into this subject named Valerie Young, who was the inventor of the imposter syndrome. I actually did a couple, I've done a couple of interviews with her. Just a brilliant soul who discovered the imposter syndrome because she was looking around her PhD classroom in the psychology department at, P, at Harvard and um, decided to do a little study among her fellow students about who felt inadequate and like they didn't really belong there, that they were just faking it and would soon be discovered. And it was most of the female students in the room. I'm just saying, we overproduce because we don't think we're enough. And a great big piece of self-care is discovering that you are enough. I was overworking. I was doing all that frantic internet marketing, consulting and coaching and blah, 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 because I didn't think I could just stand in in the truth I stand in now and have it be enough. I didn't think I'd make enough money. I didn't think I'd reach enough people. I didn't think I'd have enough impact. I wouldn't be quote unquote successful enough. And that was not the right work for me. And, you know, while it was quote unquote successful, it was draining and exhausting and it beat me up. And it was way too much. It was just completely unnecessary. Now, I have serenity and happiness, and it's a whole different picture. We like serenity and happiness around here. Um, (laughs) It's so poignant for the single audience because, by and large, we have work to do in terms of feeling like enough in our personal and private lives, because the world does not validate a single person alone as enough at all. We have to do it for ourselves and nobody backs us up. But I feel like work is such a natural place to pursue that enoughness if you are a single Mm -hmm. person. And it's, I mean, personally, it led to me burning out for years and years and years in the startup world, a space I will never return to. And that makes (laughs) sense. But on the other side of that, on on moving past that is self-care. And there is a massive amount of self-care content out there these days. It's a bit of a buzz term. And um, I want to get into concrete examples of it. But before before I do that, I would like to know from you, what is your definition of self-care? I think self-care is having the space to tune into yourself and give yourself what you need and be able to make the request, set the boundary, give yourself the time and space to get those needs met, take the actions to get the needs met. And often, Shani, we don't know what our needs are. When I was first asked this question after Teal died, somebody said, what do you need right now? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) 
because <laughs> I hadn't asked myself that question. And one of the first things I really suggest is that people ask themselves, what do I need right now? There's a, one of Joan Didion's books, when she gets into loss as well, mm-hmm. there are some really uh, like candid descriptions of the days and weeks and months following the loss of her husband. And mm. there are moments like that where her friends were like, what do you need? And she would tell them one thing that she could identify that was very like low maintenance, like maybe a kind of dish that sounded mm. comforting to her at that time. And they brought it to her every day, <laughs> whatever. They could identify this one thing that she knew that she needed because no one else knew. And, and I don't think that she was, it had to be pretty, pretty basic stuff at that point. But I really, well, I really liked her description of, of getting her needs met in those moments. Um, okay. So we have the definition. What I lack sometimes in my consumption of content around the world is, um, what are some concrete examples of self-care that we can put into practice, preferably single women, but I think this applies to literally anyone. Um, I know it sounds like a super basic question, but I have found myself seeing self-care discussed in the abstract a bit more than I want to. And I like specific examples of things because I don't like to hide anything from this audience. Like my self-care typically includes like taking time in the afternoon in the middle of a work day to mm-hmm. read and show myself that the world is not going to fall apart if I do that, something like that. Well, taking breaks is definitely something we need to do. And if people have a hard time staying focused and taking breaks, I recommend they Google the Pomodoro method, P-O-M-O-D-O-R-O, named after the tiny little tomato timer made by the Pomodoro company. That's amazing. And it's, it's, uh, it's a method of timing yourself to take breaks because that is very essential. One of the things I write about as part of safe care is act is uh, activities that can create great energy. And that's certainly one of them because one of the things we need to do is stimulate our brain in a way that is different periodically throughout the day. When you describe sitting, drinking tea, looking out your window, what you're doing, what you're doing when you drink tea by your window is you're allowing something called the default mode to switch on in your brain. Default mode is where we have creative thoughts. It's where we brainstorm. It's where we come back to ourselves. Default mode is what we wake up with when we suddenly have an idea or a problem-solving moment. You know, Whatever it is that comes to us in these unguarded moments, standing in the shower, we have a big idea. That's default mode. We have to go into default mode periodically throughout our day, I say, to create better energy. It's just as important as the, you know, well, I don't believe in 10,000 steps, but I sure like 5,000 steps, you know, or 7,000 steps. Um, You know, whatever your exercise practice is, that is certainly a part of better energy. Drinking a lot of water is part of having better energy. You know, some of these things we've heard about a lot through the years. I also think it's really important to create fun for ourselves. And now a lot of people are locked down. I, I uh, personally am in the Bay Area and that's locked down and nobody's going anywhere. And we need to find fun, even though we're at home. Well, okay. So for me, it's definitely been cooking. You know, I like to cook. I found out 
I can still needlepoint, which sounds like a really fusty little old grandma thing to do. But the coolest thing is I discovered I can create needlepoints. I could create political needlepoints if I want. I could create, you know, peace and justice needlepoints. I could create, you know, needlepoints about love and understanding. I don't just have to do like, you know, little flowers flowers by the babbling (laughs) brook, right? So I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm inspired about that. And, and I haven't done this work since I was 15, 16 years old. So that's really a decades ago, <laughs> a lot of decades ago. Um, but I love it because it's soothing. It's Zen-like. I'll do jigsaw puzzles. Um, you know, uh, people talk about reading actual books, holding them in your hand, getting off of screens, seems to be a really, really important piece of self-care. Because when we get off screens, again, the default mode has an easier chance of sort of ticking in there. There's an endless scroll feature to a lot of um, on-screen content that keeps us addictive and hooked. And we all have read about the addictive nature of our phones and online apps. But the endless scroll keeps us from peeling away back to ourselves. So another big piece of journaling that I think can be effective to counterbalance that is journaling. Just, you know, I put my life in big spiral notebooks and I always have one of them going and I put all kinds of stuff in there from notes of the doctor's appointment to middle of the night inspirations to things a friend said, you know, Another piece of this I think that's helpful is finding online meetings. Now, I like, you know, Meetup has certainly probably moved online. I don't even know at this point, but I'm always a big one for recovery meetings or support group meetings. I really discovered those after my daughter died. You can learn so much about yourself sitting and listening to other people. For some folks, it's online church or uh, temple services, whatever it is. There are places where people are congregating online for the specific purpose of supporting each other. And if you've got an issue around something in your life, I would suggest it's here to be healed and that taking care of it is part of your self-care. And you and Mr. Google or Ms. Google, as we like to think of her, you two can get together and find those meetings and, and really allow yourself to take advantage of the vast amount of support that's in the world waiting for you. Now, I know it sounds like it runs counter to my advice about getting off screens, but let's be judicious with the screens. Some things are worth it. Some things are not, you know. There's, I feel like I'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg here, but. <laughs> but it's a great iceberg. It's a really great iceberg. There is, I really resonate with the, the fun component of things. This has right. not been a fun year. This has not been a year that has lent no. itself to fun. I have had to create visual fun for myself mm. in my apartment because all I see, all I'm like taking in through my retinas all day is my space. So I had to make it something that was fun to look at or I wouldn't like being here as much. So I made like a couple of home decor changes, like some reorganizing stuff. So the visual has changed and is more like aesthetically pleasing to me. I now always have flowers in the house. That's aesthetically oh, pleasing yeah. to me. Um, had to figure out which ones will not harm a cat if she ingests them, which is also difficult to do. But I find that, I don't know if you, <laughs> it's, um, it's chaos. Um, I don't know if you have, found this, but I have seen, like anecdotally speaking, I'm asked questions in this vein pretty often. And I've seen discussions on these topics very often about like 
not feeling the way that you want to feel with your day to day and wanting improvement. And like, I don't want to be a bitch when I respond to people, but I find that so many times the answer is you have to try. Like you have to try to do this. You have to try to make a change. You have to put something different in place. Do something different. Google something different. You have mm-hmm. to try because your self-care is not going to find you. It's not going to magically materialize. Like there has to be a like a an internal drive toward self-care. It's I don't know. Is there a, a nicer or better way to say it than you have to try? <laughs> No, yeah, because here's here's my take on this, Shaney. You're feeling like a bitch because some need is not being met. When we're in balance, we're happy. We're not we're not testy. And testiness is your internal signal that something wants attention. Whether it is a friend you need to say something to, uh, a chance to cry. For some of us, we need to have a good healing cry. Did you know, in fact, a big one on crying, um, the tears, I, I spoke with somebody in photomicrography, which is a field where they take microscopic photographs of anything from snowflakes to, in this case, tears. The tears you cry when you're happy are chemically and structurally different than the tears you cry when you're sad. That the tears you cry when you're laughing are different from the tears you might cry when you're afraid. That your tears are bioengineered to soothe the problem that is happening in your body. So to that end, I highly recommend people have a good cry, especially now and now in these times, maybe even every day if they need to. When I was grieving my daughter, man, I drove around with a, a huge box of tissues for for years, three or four years, you know, and I would be sitting at a stoplight and I'd need to cry. So I'd cry. (laughs) Then I'd feel better. I mean, uh, crying is like a release valve. The other thing I would say is that we have the opportunity with, you know, I mentioned like recovery groups or support groups. We have the opportunity to just go talk about this stuff and say, I don't even know why I feel so testy, but I'm feeling testy. And as we speak, Sometimes the answer will present itself and we will suddenly have clarity or journaling can do the same thing. I don't know. I mean, I just think this is a time for reaching out to total strangers and it may sound strange, but you know, if not now, when? And we don't always have the in the hands of total strangers all (laughs) around us. Our life, our lives are literally in the hands of others. And, and we are dependent on each other in ways we can't even possibly fathom and that historically and culturally we have never even been permitted to acknowledge. But that's why I think we live in these historic and challenging times and times in which tuning into yourself is, is, is such a fantastic opportunity. Because once we take care of ourselves, we can turn our love outwards and begin to become empathetic and connected to every person who walks the earth. I love the quote, you cannot give from an empty cup. A freaking man. I love that one. I love that one. (laughs) We've touched on it a little bit, but why do you think that self-care can sometimes feel like, um, like slacking off or like, like you're lazy or you're ignoring your responsibilities? What, where does the guilt in taking downtime come from? And what are some 
in your opinion, what are what are the ways to sort of alleviate that guilt? Well, it's it's cultural. It's cultural. This is what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, and it's been handed to us by uh, people who got it from their people who got it from their people who got it from their people. And we are the generations that will rewrite that tape. It's just not needed anymore. The fact is, if we could all take care of ourselves, we'd have far more peace in the world. We'd have far more ability to get along with each other. You know, we have a crisis in the world of, of uh, sort of mass chaos and conflict, really, around communication. And, and it's here because, again, it's here to be healed. Something has to be put right. And that something begins with each of us taking responsibility for our own, our own mastery of our own lives, if we really stand up and say, I do deserve to put my phone on silent or not answer the boss's special ringtone, I can't wait to figure out what that's going to be. I, you know, that's when we take responsibility for our own well-being. We have to have some boundaries with ourselves and with the world. We can't push ourselves to overproduce anymore if we want to show up in the world as the best iteration of ourselves. How would you help someone who was having trouble setting boundaries? Because I think something else that's cultural is that no, especially in the professional space, is really hard to say. It's really hard to say in the family space. Setting boundaries and saying no can be really like terrifying and difficult and I'm only now <laughs> learning how to do it. I must say though, once you do learn how to do it, you get good at it fast because it has it pays off and you you get like the instant payoff of setting boundaries. But any any words of wisdom for someone who is really having well, difficulty? I have multiple chapters about this exact subject Excellent. in my book. Excellent. Because Excellent. and I have a chapter on asking for what you need at work and asking for what you need at home, and they're a little different, and it has to do with timing and the way you ask. And what your frame of mind is going into the ask. I mean, this is, there are times when this stuff has to be negotiated. But as a point of um, inspiration, I want to share a little story from my self-care group for extremely busy women. There was a woman who posted um, a wonderful reply to a question I had asked. I'd said, what would you do if you had 10 times more courage? And she wrote, well, I originally thought I'd quit my job. So I went in to quit my job because I had just worked way too many hours. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I was just fed up. I had no idea what I was going to do next, but I'd had it. And my boss loves me so much that I walked out of there with a part-time job for the same money. Yeah. Oh my God. This was somebody who said, okay, I'm going to set my needs up first and see what happens. This is what I'm talking about. This is about getting out of the comfort zone. This is about understanding that you do deserve to ask. This is about making requests that are powerful, firm, polite, and healthy, and they require preparation. And to get to that point, you got to do some thinking, which is why I had to write chapters about this. This is not like go storming into the boss's office and demand more money. No, no, no. This is an opportunity for growth for everybody. And it must be approached seriously. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I would like to shift the discussion a little bit to loss. And this discussion is uh, very 
like conveniently timed for me personally, because I've had some questions come to me recently about fear of loss and fear of the future that I feel a bit out of my depth to answer. I have certainly like in my background, I've come from a place of huge, huge fear of loss. And I've learned how to sort of get over that using various things like NLP and, and things like that. And I feel like I'm in a good place personally, but I do not feel equipped to discuss loss publicly because it's simply not not my space. And I'm admittedly like very, I don't even know how to like put it into words, how terrible I am with loss. Like I don't, I don't handle any component of it well. I don't, I feel very, very uncomfortable with loss because I don't know how to process it. Um, mm. But I have had listener questions come up around loss. And I, if you're comfortable, I would like to ask you a question, a very specific oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, what, what advice would you have for single people specifically who fear future loss. And the example I will give you is the loss of a parent or a sibling or any kind of primary person. So I guess Mm -hmm. theoretically this could move forward into partnership as well, but like, what is Mm -hmm. that, that fear of future loss, that fear of losing your person of the bottom dropping out. I don't know how to effectively communicate comfort or strategy here. Okay. So the thing about it is that until you experience it, you don't know how strong you are. You don't know that you can handle it, and you can. I had, before my daughter's death, uh, many years before her death, I did the Outward Bound program. And I was about to get married, and my ex-husband had asked me to do this program before I got married, which should have been a sign right there. That's all I'm saying. But this, uh, this program involved a heavy-duty ropes course, among other things. And when I did the ropes course, I found myself on a cable about 30 feet above the ground, suspended upside down because I had fallen off the cable. And there was sort of no easy way up. I was literally dangling upside down by my feet on this cable. (laughs) And um, a superhuman strength is the only way I can tell you. It just took over and I just surged my body up and grabbed onto that cable and kept going. Because they were like, we can't help you. You've got to do it yourself. And they knew this. They knew that I was capable of doing it, but I didn't know I was capable of doing it. So I had that imprint. I had experienced that. And the other thing that happened was When Teal died, which was so, I can't even stress how unexpected this was. I had dinner with her in a restaurant two hours before she collapsed, you know, and I didn't believe it at first. So when this happened, I had to go into a place of acceptance pretty darn quickly. And of course, acceptance is all intermingled with grief and loss you know, you're experiencing denial and shame and bargaining and all these things that, you know, experts talk about. But for me, behind all of it, there was always this acceptance because I had a very profound experience around the time of her passing where I really understood this was her life path. This was what her life was intended to be. So there was on some level grief and denial and acceptance all at the same time. And even strangely, Shaney, a little joy. I experienced this joy of transcendence for her. You know, whatever your spiritual belief may be, when somebody dies, 
they aren't necessarily just extinct. They might be going into a place of better realm. We don't really know. But I kept feeling these sort of leaks of joy coming out of the experience. And because I was tuning into the whole experience, I began to find lessons for myself almost immediately. And that's the opportunity of loss. You know, Debbie, who I mentioned earlier, who I do the Back to Happy podcast with, has a great little saying. She says, loss will make you stronger if you let it. You know, and that's the opportunity. So, yeah, it's going to be hard and you're going to grieve, but there's going to be benefits as well. And you have to open your mind to just transformation in general, because that's what it is. And it probably is happening because it needs to happen. It certainly did in my life. It, it was in, in every possible way, the most profound experience in my life, but in many ways, one of the most beneficial and I do feel deeply connected to my daughter to this day. I don't get the phone calls anymore, but I feel like I'm always doing her work. This is her work. This interconnection we're having right now is Teal's work. Part of what you said is what I'm so scared to say to people because I don't know how they'll receive it. The idea that someone's life path has ended and that's okay. Maybe that's what they were here for. Maybe that's what was they were meant to do. I, I, um, I, I believe that our souls come here with intention and with purpose and we don't decide when that purpose is done. And mm. like, I personally find a lot of comfort in recognizing that every soul is on its own independent journey. And like, that's the only thing that's really been able to give me genuine comfort is knowing if I lose someone in the future, like it was just their, their path here. That's yep. like, I don't, I don't know why I find so much comfort in that, but I really do. It takes away so much fear for me and gives me so much comfort, but I don't know how to communicate that in a way to other people that, that like has any sense of leadership to it because I don't feel like a leader in the space at all because I'm not, again, not good with loss. Well, let's rewrite that tape and say you're learning about loss because this, this is, is the truth. Life this is, is an experiment and every single choice and activity and circumstance that happens has a reason. That's what I think. And we may never know what that reason is. It may be somebody else's reason. But why, why on earth should we expect everybody to live long, healthy lives? Why? And maybe a grandma dies at 94, like my own mother did. That's long enough. <laughs> I mean, it really was long enough in her case, believe me. And, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, little babies who are born with terrible birth defects and die in the first few hours after their birth, they might have a path around organ donation. You don't know. They yeah. might just have the path of connecting with a parent who loses them and then has profound life lessons as a result. Mm -hmm. It's like they're, you know, call me simplistic, but I just believe acceptance and surrender is what it's about. If you want to get back to serenity and happiness, whatever you might have to be forced to accept. My friend Debbie, again, who I've mentioned several times, her house burned down in the campfire uh, in the town of Paradise, California in 2018. Biggest wildfire in California history until recently. And, uh, you know, her entire world ended immediately. Boom. And everybody in that town went through that collective grief experience. And, you know, 
when do you come to a place of acceptance about that? Well, you know, you, she had already lived with a lot of loss and hardship in her life. A daughter almost died three times over eight years until Teal's heart saved her life, you know? So she had some training in dealing with loss and was able to get to a place of acceptance a lot more quickly. This is what we're, we're trained for these experiences in this, you know, hard life we have. There's so much comfort in like letting go and understanding oh, yeah. you can't orchestrate this and whatever, yeah. literally whatever is going to happen mm-hmm. is going to, uh, on some level, be okay, no matter what, like it's, it's a, it's a weird thing to say, given how much like, like pain and suffering there can be. And, and we don't understand that, but I, I personally believe that like, whatever, whatever is coming, whatever happens like acceptance and like gleaning education from it is the only way to make it out. That's, that's my perspective, at least. I love letting go. And even, um, and in the year after Teal died, um, I wrote essays almost every day about this experience of letting go and, and, you know, even have a book about it, the joy of letting go. But in that, in that work, I really talk about how, Every time I let go a little bit more, I felt relief just a little bit more. And what did it really mean to let go? We don't even know what letting go, quote unquote, actually means because we are taught to cling. We are taught to, you know, claw our way up to the top. We are taught to do whatever it takes to push the other guys out of the way. And (laughs) once you begin to like slow down and go within and you realize that personal satisfaction and peace and serenity may be the most important thing of all, then all that stuff sort of subsides and you don't need to cling and claw and you can begin this process of letting go. It's about our values, Shani. It's about getting back to the values that are most important in our lives, knowing them, identifying them, understanding them, and then living them. And everyone can rewind 60 seconds and listen to that again, if it will help, because it's very helpful <laughs> words of wisdom. We, I, in the single space, we can feel so out of control. When you, when you look for something for years and years and years and years and years and never find it, there are a lot of feelings of just no control whatsoever and helplessness and unfairness. It's, I, I tell people that dating is the one area of life where effort does not match reward. And mm-hmm. it's, it sucks. There's no other way unless you decide that there's, there's other purpose here. There's, other, there's, mm-hmm. there's lots more purpose and lots more life to experience as a single person. But um, <laughs> on the, I'm, I'm telling you, like, it's so the, from a single perspective, it's always like, like you come at everything as a single person first. And Mm -hmm. there's always this assumption that the single person, like that first priority is finding someone. And I put finding someone in air quotes because it's my least favorite phrase on on the entire planet, finding someone. I can't stand that phrase, but um, it's just like, it's sort of being single kind of paints the perspective because there's this like assumption about us that we're not done yet that we're not complete yet, that we're not whole yet, that we're not valid yet. And I hope to shake off that nonsense with, with this podcast. Um, one of my favorite ways to do that is, um, you know this, we, we spoke about this when I was on your podcast about my uh, personal disdain for online dating. And um, one of the ways that I remind people that if they are 
having a bad experience in the single space, if they're having a bad experience in the dating space, specifically the online dating space, I like to remind people that you have to remember that human beings come together in an infinite number of ways. I have a thesis that if you interview 100 couples, you will get 100 different stories about how they met. And so I like to tell stories of how people met to this audience, because I think it's a good reminder that anything's possible. If you don't mind, would you tell us how you met your wife? I'd be delighted. About um, 18 months after my daughter died, I began to feel like I just wanted to be intimate with somebody, that I, that I could handle it. It was probably a little soon, honestly. And uh, I had been doing a, a trade of coaching with some people who had an online dating consulting service, sort of a dating coaches they were for, for, for women in the queer space. So uh, I said, hey, why don't you coach me a little bit? And um, they said, okay. And uh, I started going on some dates. Like immediately women just showed up. It was sort of magical. And they started asking me out. And I would come back to them and say, well, she did this and she did that. It was all nice. But then she said, and they're like, eh, tilt, no. <laughs> and, and we went through, you know, a lot of dates with a lot of women in a pretty short sequence of time, about four months. There was, there was some, some um, people I met that I didn't feel any chemistry for. And then others who said things or did things that weren't, just weren't a good fit. And uh, these folks, I really relied on them to keep me straight on, well, let me rephrase that. To keep me, <laughs> keep me, uh, doing the right thing. There you go. Because in the previous relationship, the very toxic relationship I'd had, I met that woman online through an online dating app. And I was determined not to do that again. And I didn't. Um, these were people I met by going out to hiking clubs and, you know, all kinds of places. So along the, along in this time came a psychic who, um, was a friend of a friend. You meet all these people when you lose a child who've also lost children. And she was a psychic who'd lost her daughter. And um, she was a friend of a friend who had lost her daughter. And she contacted me and said, I, I got this, um, you know, inspiration, I should gift you a reading. So of course, I said yes. And uh, she described my wife to me in vivid detail. And then a few months later, I went to a party and there was a woman who fit this description talking to me. And I was having all these feelings. And I asked her name and I started, and I was like, whoa, this is happening. So, you know, I walked in. It was really interesting because when I walked in that party, I saw her immediately. And I just was like beelining it to her. I just had to know this person. And um, she's a little older than me. Wasn't sure, you know. Am I feeling romantic feelings? What am I feeling here? But I just was like, I am mesmerized by this woman and I have to know her better. And within about an hour, it was clear we were going to have a relationship. And, and I remember her saying, asking me all these questions. And I finally said, why are you asking me all these questions? And she said, I'm looking for things we might do together. And I was like, all right, then. <laughs> and the next day I called her, I didn't play it cool. And, uh, and that kind of blew her mind. And we went out on a date and another date and another date. And we are very blissfully wedded. And in fact, we are soulmates and she's the love I've looked for all my life. That is just the best story. Thank you for sharing. I have P to hear them. We have P.S. To hear the them. coaches were like, 
Yeah, now you're talking. <laughs> right on, girl. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Good. You know what good. I like? What the most, I like the most that there was just this like drive to action and you weren't worried about playing games or playing it cool. There weren't all these like questions buzzing about like, what should I do or how should I play this? It was just, it's just there. It's just happening. And it's like a, a moment that you're living fully. I love that. I had learned, I had learned to let go of my picture of what I thought was going to be, you know, the perfect partner for me, you know, how we all have lists and all this. And what I really wanted was somebody who really got me and who was an energetic equal to me. And I have a big energy and she has a big energy and our big energies just soar together. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about partnership, real partnership. And I didn't want to be poorly treated. And I'm not. I'm treated like a a, a very uh, respected and loved person. I aspire to that. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that with me and reminding me of what's possible and this entire audience of what's possible. Yeah. Sometimes oh, I forget yeah. that other people are listening. Sometimes I'm just like, I get to have a really cool conversation today and I and, forget. <laughs> and P.S. For 25 years, I had a husband as a lesbian. Okay. I had to really rewrite that tape. So all those years, I didn't think it was possible to find true love as a lesbian. I didn't think I could have children. Now, I was of an older generation that didn't know that was possible. And then the, you know, when I came out at 52 years old, thank you very much. All the lesbians were like, what, slow learner? You know, (laughs) good question. I thought, yes, as a matter of fact. Slow learning is fine. That's fine. Right. (laughs) We're all on our own path and trajectory. That's totally fine. Wow. Oh my gosh. I I really loved hearing that story. I one day I I have dreams of compiling them into a book for Mm -hmm. people to read and remind themselves of everything that is possible. Just remember there is like more, there is more possible than the faces you flip through on your phone. Talk about an endless scroll. Oh yeah. No, it's not about faces. It's not, it's about what happens when you sit down and you talk and you are in each other's presence and you are live. You're live. That list that you mentioned that we all have our lists. Mine has evolved so much. It used to include for a long time. It included a lot of specific things. And then I was like, no, I can't have specific things. I can't be picky. I can't be picky at all. I should just like take whatever I can get. So I had like, I removed all of my deal breakers except for one. I don't want children and that's a big one. So that stayed, but everything okay. else went. And then I came back to a place where I was like, no, I am allowed to want things, but the things that I want are different. Now mm-hmm. it's more of that energetic fit. Now it's more of like a, a relationship that has, uh, I like balance. I like things mm-hmm. that feel balanced. I like exchanges that feel yeah. very balanced. And there's a lot of respect, like mutual mm-hmm. respect. That's that's the list now or things like that. Not so much the the little deal breakers sure. that um, that were like mandatories for me. The no kids thing is still a big deal. But yeah, other than that, it. like it's open. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, please tell everyone, obviously I'm going to link to all of your books and your, your website and what have you, but how can people keep up with what you're doing? What are the best ways to follow along with your work? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, come on over to my website, which is suzannefalter.com, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-F-A-L-T-E-R.com and get on, uh, the list by availing yourself of some of the freebies you'll see on the site. 
But uh, really, you can also check out the Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women podcast, the Back to Happy podcast, uh, and join us on the Facebook group, the Self-Care Group for Extremely Busy Women. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all kinds of places. And I am looking to help anyone who wants to get back to themselves, to really love themselves, love the world, and carry on this beautiful light leadership I was given by Teal. Thank and now, you so thank much. you, Janie, for <laughs> no. me and us do that. <laughs> I have to thank you for joining me. This was a joy and a pleasure. It was a, a wonderful experience to talk with you again. I feel very lucky. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insight and experience oh, with yeah. us. And we'll have your show up soon. And I look forward to sharing it with your community. Fantastic. Thank you so much. 